This morning we're going to look at John chapter 12, and it's going to be verses 12 through 19, and let me pray for us before we come to God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this Word. We're thankful for the Word that we've already heard in the service this morning, and the Word that we have sung, and the Word that we have prayed, and now we thank You for this Word that we read and which we shall hear preached. We're thankful that your word is living, that it's active, and it takes hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. We're thankful that it is your word, that it is a voice from on high that we get to hear, a word that is without error, a word that is always true, A word that we can stand upon and is a firm foundation for us. And as we stand upon it this morning, may we find that our hearts and our souls and our minds are lifted up into heaven to gaze upon your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19, this is the holy and errant word of God. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast that Jesus heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's Palm Sunday. I thought we would tackle this text this week and with the rest of this week, we can look at some of these Holy Week texts uh, as we are kind of in a break, and then we'll start something new in May. I remember as a small child, Palm Sunday, uh, being in a church, and I remember them giving us palm branches, and I remember walking around the sanctuary with those palm branches, and every time there was someone that was up front would say, Hosanna, we would all take our palm branches and we would wave them in the air. And I had no clue what I was doing. Uh, I didn't know why we were doing this. Uh, And I'm sure that was true of many of the other kids as well. And actually, that's not so unlike the scene that we see here in John chapter 12. Let me give you a little background to what has led to this scene in John chapter 12. In John chapter 11, you may remember that Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, became sick. And Lazarus 
becoming ill there in Bethany, this, this family that Jesus had a very close relationship with, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. When Lazarus became ill, Mary and Martha sent, sent a messenger to Jesus to say, our brother Lazarus is sick. And you would think that Jesus would be off and running on his way to, to heal Lazarus, but he delays. He says that this has happened so that God might receive the glory. And in that delay, Lazarus actually dies. And so Jesus makes his way, then after Lazarus has died, he makes his way to Bethany, and there is Mary and Martha, and there are all of these people that are mourning before the tomb of Lazarus, who has been in this tomb for days, and Jesus raises him from the grave. He takes a dead man who has been dead for days, and he brings him to new life. And the Pharisees have an immediate reaction. They say they are going to plot to put Jesus to death because of this. And even that's not enough. They say, you know what, it's not just enough to put Jesus to death. We also need to put Lazarus to death. We need to kill him again. Because we don't like this walking testimony of who Jesus is and what he can do. And the opposition is absolutely strong. It is, it is, it is, it is firm. It has it is reached a kind of fever pitch with these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes where they are now plotting to seek to murder him and to murder this one that he has raised from the grave. But the excitement about Jesus also reaches a high as a result. And that's what we see in this text. Jesus moves from... Galilee to Jerusalem. And his time has finally come. He leaves Bethany, and as he heads into Jerusalem, he goes into Jerusalem because he's going to celebrate the Passover. And a tribe of people, a crowd, is going with him from Bethany. A crowd that, as John tells us here in verse 17, that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. John says about this crowd, he says they continued to bear witness about him. That is, they couldn't be silent about what they had seen. This man that was dead, now being raised. When you've encountered the living Christ in his work, you long to tell others. And so John will say they continued to bear witness about him and what he had done. And wouldn't you? If you had seen someone dead, and not just dead, but buried and buried for days, and then someone brings that person back to life, wouldn't you feel like you've got to tell everybody? And so it was true of these people in Bethany. And yet we have seen something even greater. You and I. We've seen people born into this world dead. Not just dead for days, but dead for all the years of their life. And Christ calls them forth and takes those hearts of stone and turns them to hearts of flesh, and he gives them new life. They continued to bear witness about him. And this crowd that came with him from Bethany, they went into Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, there was a large crowd, and there to that crowd, these people from Bethany are testifying to what Jesus had done, that he had raised Lazarus from the grave. 
And it has an impact upon these people in Jerusalem. They come streaming out to, to meet Jesus. Now, it would have been a large crowd that was in Jerusalem because ever since the time of Josiah, when Josiah was king, the Jews could no longer just celebrate the Passover wherever they were locally. They had to come to Jerusalem to celebrate it. It was mandated. And so most good Jews were traveling down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover ever since the days of Josiah. Josephus, that first century Jewish historian, estimates that in A.D. 66, so this is right after the ministry and the life of Jesus, A.D. 66, he says that at that Passover, there were 2,700,000 people who took part in the Passover in Jerusalem. And that doesn't even include the foreigners. So that's just the Jews. So if we were just conservative in our estimate and we said, okay, well, at this time, let's just say that there were 2 million people in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. It's a massive crowd. A huge gathering of people in the ancient world. And this crowd from Bethany has seen Lazarus raised from the grave and they've come to this crowd in Jerusalem and they're telling them this news of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And so the crowd from Jerusalem begins to spill out of Jerusalem. And they come out to meet this Jesus of Nazareth. And the two crowds are converging on the road as Jesus makes his way into this city. Verse 19, John tells us, because they had heard about this resurrection, this mighty sign he had performed, they went out to meet Jesus. It's a different scene for Jesus. You think about Christ so far, especially in the Gospel of John, he, he wants no kind of public celebrations. He avoids crowds. He isn't doing things with, with all kinds of people looking on. He doesn't want people telling who He is and what He has done, and yet here it's different. As the Pharisees said in verse 19, all the world has gone out after Him. And He, he seems to want the public attention. Why? Because the reason is clear. Jesus' time has arrived. This is it. This is the beginning of the Holy Week. He, as the Christ, the promised Messiah, the King, He was entering His royal city. And He was going to die for His people. Die for their sins. His ministry, as it, as it reaches its climax, is to be visible for all the world to see. No hiding this. Long awaited for Messiah, a deliverer of God's people. He's here. And so he welcomes it. And the streets are packed with people. And they usher him into his holy city with praise. It, it is quite a scene. I want to look at this morning in three ways. 
One, I want to look at this royal greeting that is given to Christ, and then I want to look at his royal response, Christ's royal response, and then finally the royal victory that he secured. So first, the royal greeting. You notice that the crowd is in a kind of fervor. It's a giant crowd of people that the other gospels tell us that there were people that were going before him. There were people that were coming after him. There is just this large crowd, a parade of sorts, kind of coming into Jerusalem, all coming to see this one who has done such a great miracle. And the Greek is even a little more emphatic. They came out on account of this, is what the Greek says, on account of the fact that he had raised Lazarus from the grave. And they they want to see this man. They do more than want to see him. They, They celebrate him. On account of hearing of this miracle, they come out. It's very similar to other passages in the Gospel of John where we See people or crowds believe on account of the signs that Jesus has done, but that's about as far as it went. They, they didn't trust him often in these cases, as Jesus will say repeatedly in the book. For example, at another Passover feast in John chapter 2, we're told that, quote, many believed in his name when they saw the sign that he had done. And yet, we're told this But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. They're excitable. There's fervor in the air. They've seen him do a miracle. They've heard of him doing a miracle. There's just high excitement. And yet, here, that fervor erupts in adoration of Jesus. Did some of them believe that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah? I think surely, as we'll see from the text this morning. But others were probably like me on Palm Sunday as a little kid, just doing what everybody else is doing. Pick up a palm branch and go. But surely some believed that he was the promised king, the long-awaited-for Messiah, because of how they greeted him. They did two things in their greeting. They waved palm branches and they cried out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And these are both very significant greetings. Both the palm branches and the words that they cry out. The palm branch had a kind of national symbolism to it by this point. It stood for the fact that that there was the need for deliverance or that deliverance was being granted And it dates back to that intertestamental time, the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In between the Old and the New Testament, we have about 400 years. And during those 400 years, especially towards the end of those 400 years, the palm branch became a signal of a sign of deliverance. Uh, The Seleucids ruled over that territory, ruled over Jerusalem at the time. And Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he was the king of the Seleucid Empire, and he will come into Jerusalem because Jerusalem revolts. And Jerusalem will revolt under a man with a name that strikes fear in his opponents, Jason. (laughs) And uh, Antiochus Epiphanes will come in and he will crush the revolt. And when he crushes the revolt, he will 
desecrate the temple in Jerusalem and he will close it. And as a result of him closing the temple where the Jews came to worship, there will be another revolt. And this will be Mattathias who revolts and he leads a kind of guerrilla type warfare against the Seleucids to, to try and, and get them back and to get the temple reopened. And he will eventually die and so the revolt will be taken over by his son, the famous Judas Maccabeus. Or what his name means is the hammer. Judas the hammer. And the hammer will function as a kind of Robin Hood. He'll become a national hero. He will use this kind of guerrilla warfare and he'll attack the Seleucids and he'll steal money from them and he'll give it to the Jews and he will so bother the Seleucid Empire that eventually they will reopen the temple. And that is why we celebrate Hanukkah. The Jews do. In our day and age. It's because of this, of Judas Maccabeus, the hammer. Judas's brother, Simon Maccabeus, will then take over when Judas dies, and Simon Maccabeus will continue to give trouble to the Seleucids to the point that they will finally be kicked out of Jerusalem. And as a result, the, the worship of God's people, they feel like they have been liberated, they've been delivered, and so Simon Maccabeus will march into Jerusalem in a kind of parade. And think World War II, New York City, the confetti flying from all the towers and that ticker tape parade. Well, when, Jude, when Simon Maccabeus is leading his army into Jerusalem, it's not ticker tape, it's palm branches. And everyone begins waving palm branches. And it becomes the national symbol of deliverance, of freedom. The fact that God has provided a deliverer. So much so that in AD 66, when the Jews will again revolt, and this time they're revolting against the Romans, they will print their own coins, mint their own coins. And on those coins in AD 66 during the Jewish wars, the symbol on those coins will be the palm branch. Because we're throwing off the yoke, being liberated. So this palm waving is not for nothing. It is ripe with symbolism and it tells us what the Jews in that crowd think of Christ or at least what they hope of Him. Now, these palm branches aren't just a cute prop for children's church. They are a declaration that royalty has come. The Messiah has come. That a deliverer has come. But it's not just the palm branches that mark this royal greeting. They... They accompany it with shouts by the people, Hosanna. You sang that this morning. Do you know what you're singing? Hosanna. Literally, give salvation now. Hosanna, give salvation now. And then a quote from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Waving branches, give salvation now. Quoting Psalm 118. This is not a benign scene. Psalm 18, 118 was a psalm that the Jews often quoted on their pilgrimage to, to uh, Jerusalem during the Passover feast. 
And we read it this morning, read portions of it this morning in our order of worship. It was a song that pilgrims would sing to one another, kind of wishing one another a blessing, but it took on a, a greater sense than that. It, it became the psalm that was expected to be pronounced as a blessing upon the Messiah that would eventually come, the Davidic king that would fulfill that promise to David that he would have a son that would sit upon the throne forever. This was the psalm that all the Jews believed we should pronounce upon him when he comes. Psalm 118, and you can see this because they add language that's not in Psalm 118 when they say, even the king of Israel. It's not in Psalm 118, but they add it in their, in their greeting. Did they all believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the king, the deliverer to come? I don't know. I doubt it, but at least some did. Enough that this is what the crowd is doing. They had high expectations for Jesus. This was the Davidic king, the Messiah, who would finally deliver them out from underneath the yoke of the Roman Empire that would set them free. Once and for all, this is not a benign scene. You think about this, this is a, a powder keg ready to explode. Here is a crowd that is ready to usher Jesus into the holy city, and they're ready to set him up upon a throne. The Romans had to be absolutely afraid. This had to be their worst nightmare. Over two million Jews gathering in one place and excited to fever pitch and thinking this is their deliverer marching into the city with him. The Pharisees are worried. See that by their response. They knew to be worried. They're deeply concerned. They knew what could happen here with the people's expectation of who Jesus was and what he was to do. There was that much fervor in the air. But the royal response is different. Jesus doesn't lead them in revolt. His ways are not the ways of the world. The crowd rightfully gives him a royal greeting, and in part, we can say that the crowd's desire was not wrong. Rather, their desire was simply too small. What they were looking for in a Messiah was just too small. And Christ's royal response in this passage makes that clear, our second point. They had fervor, he had faithfulness. He wouldn't be caught up in the crowd's fervor. Now, he doesn't hesitate to accept their royal greeting, their, their praise and their recognition of him as the Messiah, as the king. You notice that. So those of you sitting here this morning that say, ah, I like Jesus, but I don't think he ever saw himself as more than a teacher. He was a good moral teacher. That's how he saw himself. Listen, they are ascribing praise to him. And he doesn't turn it away. He doesn't dismiss it. He embraces it. 
And he rides in as the king into his city. The crowd, they're ramped up. Their fervor is great. Jesus' royal response is he receives the praise, but he grabs a donkey. Grabs a donkey. If a king is riding into his city as the victor and the conqueror and the deliverer, you expect him to ride in on a war horse. Solomon had 46,000 stalls of war horses. That's a king. Jesus just kind of quiets down their expectations. Grabs a donkey. And by doing so, he gives a very clear picture of the nature of his kingship. It's different than the crowd's expectation, their desire, their longing. Make no mistake, Christ will not conform to our expectations of what he should be. He does not take polls. He does not do focus groups. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can't mold Christ. You can't create a Christ of your own making. He is who He is, and He'll be who He shall be. I am who I am. There are many who miss Christ because they have wrong expectations. There are many more who miss Christ because they want Him different than He is. He is the humble Prince of Peace, not the violent King. This is what the prophecy that Jesus fulfills here speaks about, and John quotes it. It comes from Zechariah 9.9. We read portions of that as well this morning. It isn't an exact quotation as John appears to do what many of the New Testament writers do where he combines a couple of different texts. So he is combining here Zechariah 9.9 and Isaiah 49. This was common practice. But he quotes, fear not, daughter of Zion. Fear not, Jerusalem. Don't fear, your king is coming. He's sitting on a donkey's colt. This prophecy which Zechariah uttered 500 years before, Jesus is now fulfilling in detail as the Messiah. 500 years before. He's the promised one. He could have turned that crowd into a a rabble. He could have turned them into an army. He could have told them to pick up swords and to pick up weapons and to throw off that, that Roman yoke. But that's not the object of His coming. And that isn't how He accomplishes the object of His coming. Because His kingdom is not a human creation could not be secured even by an army of men. His kingdom is a divine work that can only be secured by a divine sacrifice. And he knows it. His victory as king is not our doing. Our victory must be his doing. And he knows this. 
all of our machinations to try and destroy this man and to destroy his ministry, we're gaining nothing. This is... These are the words of angry men. Of men that are baffled and confounded and don't know what to do next. Reminds me of Psalm 2. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. And Psalm 2 tells us that God sits enthroned above and He just laughs. It's just silly, their plans and their plots. Because no enemy can prevent this king from reigning. Despite all their resistance, all their plotting, even attempting to kill him and Lazarus, it amounts to nothing. He will reign. Because he's the king. Oh, the pride of men. Think about these Pharisees. They should have run to him. They should have run to him. They were the most religiously trained of all the people in that entire scene. They knew the Old Testament prophecies and the Old Testament scriptures forward and backwards. They would put all of us in this room to shame. But their pride stopped them. Pride is the greatest enemy to bowing the knee before royalty. Don't let you let your pride stop you. There's only one deliverer. There's only one Messiah. There's only one king. And you must bow the knee before him. And that requires slaying your pride. As the Pharisees will find out, he will conquer. We see it even in this passage. The Pharisees end our passage by erupting in a kind of hyperbolic statement. They say, look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. They mean, look, all these people from all over the Mediterranean world, all these Jews that have come here to Jerusalem, they are all flooding out to see him. They are all flooding out to give him praise and adoration and adulation. All the world. How little they knew of what they spoke. Reminds me of Caiaphas just in the previous chapter where Caiaphas spoke more than he knew. When he says in John 11, it's better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Like him, these Pharisees, they say more truth here than they know. What they said would be realized. Indeed, the whole world would come to him. The whole world. Palm Sunday is but a shadow of the prophecy in Isaiah 2. It's just a shadow, a little glimpse. Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And as Jesus fulfilled Zechariah 9, so He shall fulfill Isaiah 2. All the nations shall stream to Him. There shall be those before His throne from every tongue, tribe, and nation. From both sexes, from every age, from every ethnicity, from every color of skin... All streaming to Him. 
bowing their knee before Him. Exalting Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Palm Sunday just gives us a little tiny glimpse of what it shall look like. We'll take five minutes just to look at the royal victory from Zechariah 9. Because that is the passage that kind of dominates this John 12 text. And it gives us a very clear picture of what Jesus actually secures in His royal victory. His royal death upon the cross. Something that the crowd was not ready for, but something that they desperately needed. Chapter 9 of Zechariah, it's a prophecy about this Messiah to come. And that's why it's quoted. And in that passage, we're told that the Christ will have a royal victory. And that royal victory will mean that he will usher in peace. He will bring in peace as our king. And he grants it in three categories in Zechariah 9. He first grants peace with our enemies, Zechariah 9.10. He shall cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. Why? Why is it that all of these instruments of war are cut off? Because the war is over. You've been delivered from your enemies. The king has come and he's conquered. The Messiah has delivered. And so your enemies have been vanquished. The war is over. As our king, Jesus brings peace to us by defeating all our enemies. Sin, Satan, hell, death, whatever it may be. Opposition, mockers, and he does it by the cross. He does it by conquering them, and he he rules them. I love how the Westminster Shorter Catechism answers the question. It says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is this, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. He slays that pride within us. In ruling and defending us. And in restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. He restrains all of our enemies in this life. Not just His, ours. And He conquers them. Every enemy is conquered. And so you have peace without. You have eternal peace without. The victory is already secured. The fate is sealed of these enemies. Second, as our king, his royal victory grants peace in our world. Zechariah 9. He says, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river, meaning the river Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. If you're for world peace, then you're for Jesus. You've got to be for Jesus if you're for world peace. Because it's Jesus that ushers in world peace. He gives us peace without, with our enemies. We have nothing to fear. You need not fear death. You need not fear Satan. You need not fear hell. You need not fear sin. He's established peace. He's conquered them. And you need not fear that wars will continue to rage. You need not fear that there will continually be disturbance. 
There will be a day where he ushers in peace, where it's fully consummated, it's already purchased, it's already secured, where peace will stretch from one corner of the globe to the other corner of the globe, to the other corner of the globe, to the other corner of the globe. There will only be peace. You want world peace? You pray for Christ's return. He ushers it in. So he gives us peace without their enemies. He gives peace to the earth. But not only that, he grants us peace with our God. Zechariah 9, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. This royal victory secures for us peace with our God. These Jews had too little a view of the Messiah. He secures peace with our enemies. He secures peace for the world. And ultimately, he secures the ultimate peace, peace with our God. And the only way, and he knew it, for him to ride into his holy city as the king and to be slayed by his subjects so that he might usher us in into the throne room of God and we have no fear of condemnation. None. That's worth raving a branch for. It's worth giving up a couple of hosannas for. He secures our peace. This is the King of kings. This is the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do exalt you this morning. As our King of kings. And Lord of lords, a great Messiah and deliverer. And even now in our hearts, we bow our knee before you. And we pray that we would rest in your peace, that we would exalt you as our King, and that we would be quick to continually testify of the life we have seen come back from the dead. For your praise and your glory. In Christ's name, amen.